All right, today's subject is a serious one uh, on adultery and divorce. And so because it's such a serious sermon, we're going to start out with a little bit of fun to start with, okay? And then we'll get serious. Now, anytime you ask children about serious subjects, you get some pretty funny answers, right? And you get some insightful answers too. So um, I'd like to share just a few things uh, that kids have said regarding marriage. So here's some questions and then some answers from children. The question is, how do you decide whom to marry? How do you decide to whom to marry? Kristen, who's 10, said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God's decide, God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> so, another question, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? Derek, who's eight, said, you might have to guess based on if they're yelling at the same kids. <laughs> Another question. What do most people do on a date? Martin, age 10, said, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. <laughs> Another question. Uh, when is it okay to kiss someone? When is it okay to kiss someone? Pam, age seven, said, when they're rich. <laughs> suppose that's good advice, right? <laughs> and Howard, age eight, said, the rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. So there you go. So marriage advice from children. Now, Howard isn't too far off from Jesus' words that we'll study today in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32. So Matthew 5, 31 and 32 is our passage for the day. I do have it on the screen. Uh, you can listen along as I read it, and then we're going to dig into it. So Jesus teaches, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I told you it's a serious subject today. <laughs> All right, as we get in today, I want to give you just some three background reminders to help set up what we're going to study here today. First of all, we need to remember that Jesus is speaking primarily to his disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he sits down on the hillside there, and he's teaching his disciples, but we also know that the crowds are listening in. If you were to glance at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, you'll see that the crowds were impressed with Jesus' authority and how he taught. So disciples are the primary audience, the crowds are listening, and secondly, Jesus is upholding the authoritatively binding nature of God's law. Back in verse 18 of chapter 5, you'll remember uh, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus is expounding upon God's authoritatively binding word. And thirdly, Jesus is instructing his disciples on what kingdom righteousness looks like. So in chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus has gifted us righteousness, we know that, through his life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. 
but, and that's a, that's a judicial righteousness that God gives to us. He declares us right in God's sight. But now he's saying, as my disciples, here's the practical righteousness that I want you to live out as a kingdom citizen. And so one of the teachings is on how we view marriage and how we uh, interact regarding divorce. All right. So with that backdrop, let's study now two outcomes of Jesus' teaching on divorce and adultery. The first one is this. Jesus' teaching corrects our immoral view of divorce. Our immoral view of divorce. In order to figure out what's wrong with something, it's always helpful to look at what the standard is. Because you compare your current situation to the standard, and then you're able to start discerning what's wrong with this whole picture. So... As you might expect, the issue of marriage, divorce, remarriage, adultery was a hot topic in Jesus' day, and it's also a hot topic today. People practically try to deal with these things because it's a reality in our experience. So in Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a very similar question, and so he gives the standard for marriage there, which then allows us to compare where we are as a as, uh, opposed to where we should be. So in Matthew 19, 3 through 6, uh, Jesus, uh, the, the story goes, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? He answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So in this uh, recalling of God's original blueprint for marriage, he said, God is their creator. He made one man for one woman, one woman for one man. And this is why this original creation, this is why people get married. This is why a husband, or a man leaves his father and mother and joins to his wife and they form their own union. That's why, because God created them male and female for that very purpose. And so Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So let's think. God, who's the author of life, he's the creator of male and female, he's the architect of marriage, declared, without consulting us first, <laughs> That marriage is one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's God's design. He did not need our input. He doesn't need our input now. That's the design. That's the blueprint. Yet, our sinful wickedness keeps trying to recalibrate and bend marriage to suit our own tastes, which is the same thing that happens in regard to divorce. Now, we put this up last week. Uh, to talk about what is God's original design in marriage. Genesis 2, 24 and 25, we mentioned that last week. So this is a great picture. This is where uh, physical expression happens between a man and a woman within the bounds of marriage. And the two have become one. That's the point. John MacArthur writes, he says, marriage is the work of God. Divorce is the work of man. So Jesus begins in verse 31. He says, it was said... So when Jesus said this, he's not correcting God's law. He's not correcting God's law. Remember, he's the fulfillment of the law, and now he's um, showing us that the law is binding and authoritative. 
he's correcting the people's false interpretation and their false applications based on that false interpretation of the law. So Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 24, uh, verse 1 through 4. So if you want to go there in your Bibles, you can go to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And this is what Jesus is quoting from. And there's a whole bunch of cultural baggage imported into this, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So in the law of Moses, Moses writes, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house... And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. All right, a couple of things here. The scriptures are saying in that particular context in the Mosaic law, if she finds no favor in your eyes, you find something indecent in her. Now, we don't know exactly what this phrase indecent or um, something um, immoral in her actually means. There's debate whether that's adultery, but under the law, if she commits adultery, then she's stoned to death. Or he commits adultery, he's stoned to death. So it seems like it's more than adultery or something just short of adultery. So it's not 100% clear what is being spoken of. But we see here that there's a certificate of divorce that needs to be written and given to the wife because men were just sending their wives away, which in that society leaves them vulnerable. And they don't They'd face the shame of the society because no one knows why this woman was um, uh, divorced. And if people don't know the true information, what do they do? They fill in the blanks. Oh, she must be, you know, one of those women. And so she's shamed in the society. And so the certificate of divorce needs to say why she was divorced and that she's therefore free to remarry. To help bring some clarity here, Dr. D.A. Carson writes, The thrust of the passage is this. If a man finds some uncleanness in his wife and divorces her, giving her a certificate of divorce, and she marries someone else who in time also divorces her, then her first husband cannot remarry her. By Jesus' day, this main principle that's taught in Deuteronomy 24 was overlooked in favor of concentrating attention on the uncleanness which would make legitimate the first divorce. So he's saying... People overlooked the true meaning of the passage and they're like keying in on what does that word indecency or um, uncleanness mean. And because it's not clear, they imported all kinds of reasoning for that. And so he says, in Jesus' day, some even thought that it could be, this indecency, could be some imperfection, some imperfection in the wife as trivial as serving her husband food which had been accidentally burned probably be a few divorces across this congregation, right? It's like, why did you burn the pizza? You're out of here. <laughs> so that's what was going on. What's, what does indecency mean? What does uncleanness mean? Well, it must mean this. It must mean this. It must mean this. And so 
men were sending their wives away for trivial matters. A little bit more historical background. Just prior to Jesus' day, there were two prominent rabbis. Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. So there were two schools of thought on this particular question about whether a person can divorce his wife or not, or for what reason. Rabbi Shammai was the more conservative school of thought. He said that divorce can only happen when there's been adultery. That's what the word of God means. The more liberal school was the, liberal, uh, was the um, school of Hillel. And I'm quoting now from Dr. Craig Keener on this issue. In the school of Hillel, he taught that a husband uh, couldn't only send his wife away if she had committed adultery, if he could prove it, but also if he suspected her of committing adultery on him. Now I'm also quoting from Dr. Robert Mounts. He says, indecency, from Deuteronomy 24, could include, as taught by the school of Hillel, anything which caused annoyance or embarrassment, such as having bad breath, speaking too loudly in the house, or even if he no longer found her attractive. So much more liberal view of divorce there. And then just after the time of Jesus was another rabbi named Akiba. And Robert Mounts here, I'm quoting again, says, finding a woman more attractive than one's wife constituted something indecent and allowed divorce according to Akiba. So you can see the controversy in their day, you've got a very conservative view, you've got a, a liberal view, and you've got a hyper-liberal view there of how men were treating their wives. So, men in his day, Jesus' day, were very lax in their reasons for divorce. And this represents a gross neglect of God's word. It represents a gross neglect of Jesus' words and his teachings also. If you think about our day in terms of divorce, some of the common um, reasons for divorce are things like you might expect infidelity for sure. But there's also reasons such as incompatibility or irreconcilable differences. And so these become catch-all categories for reasons that may not be 100% clear-cut. And so we have similar things happening in our day in terms of marriage and divorce. I, I like the comic strip many years ago. I haven't looked at it for a while, but one called Lockhorn. And Lockhorn is one where there's uh, two middle-aged uh, middle couple and they like to get little digs in on each other through sarcasm. Okay, so let's, let me show you this, this cartoon here. All right, so he says, um, I can't read that, that's not good. Must part with motorcycle or wife, make offer on either. So his view there, and this is just sort of picturing a cultural view, right? His view there is, you know, I, I need to get rid of something. What's more valuable to me, the motorcycle or the wife? This represents more of this liberal view of divorce. But here's the point. Jesus' teaching on, in Matthew 5, 31 and 32 makes us stand up a little straighter in regard to marriage, doesn't it? Where we've been slouching. Our sinful attempts to redesign marriage to suit our own whims have only caused to cheapen it. Married couples in our culture today act as if they're a dating couple. You know, if you're dating, you can end things more quickly and more cleanly, but you can't do that with a one flesh union in marriage. Jesus is once again 
examining our hearts to show us that we're not revering God's law the way we ought to. That we're not acting in faith. We're acting out of a selfish convenience that dishonors God and devastates relationships and devastates society at large. So the teaching here is about divorce and adultery. But if you go behind the scenes, it's really not the root cause. It's our hearts. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 19? And we'll get to this many months from now. But he said, uh, they said, can we divorce for any reason at all? Why did Moses command us to divorce? And Jesus said, uh, this is not how it was in the beginning. Moses permitted you to divorce because of your hard hearts. Which is a warning to all of us, especially in marriage or future marriages. Watch your heart. That you don't become hardened toward God and you don't become hardened toward your spouse. Work on marriage. Value marriage. And see it as God has taught us to see it. All right, so there's the first outcome. Jesus' teaching corrects our improper view of divorce. I mean, do you not read Matthew 5, 31 and 32 and go, oh, wow, that's not something I've heard in our society. It makes us straighten up. All right, second outcome. Jesus' teaching protects God's proper design for marriage. Now on to verse 32. But I say to you, Everyone who divorces his wife besides sexual immorality. All right, now Jesus obviously is holding, upholding the conservative view of the interpretation of these scriptures. It's an unpopular view in his day. It's an unpopular view in our day regarding marriage and divorce. The word divorce here is used in the New Testament. Um, it has a, a, a wide range of meanings depending on context, but it means at its root to, to release or to set free. To release or to set free in the context of marriage, what you're doing is you're sending away your wife or your husband. You're, you're setting them free from the marriage covenant. You're, you're breaking that bond. You're releasing them. That's what it means. But Jesus said, if you divorce your spouse except for sexual immorality, then you're making her commit adultery, and the one who marries her is also committing adultery. Wow. Quoting now from David Turner, who I think gives a good summary of what Jesus is saying. If there's been no sexual infidelity, there can be no real divorce. If there's been no real divorce, there can be no remarriage. And additional sexual unions are adulterous. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, let's look here at the, at the exception clause, at the exception clause. Matthew is the only one who records the exception clause. Mark uh, doesn't record this in Jesus' words. Luke does not record this in Jesus' words. Anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality. So let's dig into this a little bit. The word uh, there that's translated in, in my version here, New American Standard Bible, unchastity, or some of your versions might say sexual immorality or immorality, is the Greek word porneia, which is a catch-all term for any form of sexual immorality, which includes adultery. So throw that picture up there we have from the previous week. This is porneia, anything outside of the bonds of marriage, uh, like we mentioned last week, you can read it there, is, por is uh, sexual immorality. So Jesus is saying when there's been adultery, then the person... Uh, is permitted to divorce. Now, having said that, divorce is permissible when there's adultery, but it's not required. It's not 
required. There have been many a couple who have worked out their differences. There's been this breach of trust, this breach of fidelity, but they've humbled themselves before the Lord, they've humbled themselves before each other, and they have put the marriage back together by God's grace, worked on unity, worked on forgiveness, and committed to one another when there's been true repentance. And so it's permissible, but not required. So, in the New Testament, by Jesus' teaching, you have at least one clear way that the marriage can end in divorce, and that is by way of adultery. Now, there's also a second um, situation that's clear in the New Testament as to when the divorce is permissible, and that is from 1 Corinthians 7.15. 1 Corinthians 7.15. That is when there's desertion or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. So in, the, in Paul's day, the Corinthians heard the gospel. They came to Christ out of this pagan background. One of the spouses comes to Christ. The other one does not. Okay? And so the, the non-believing spouse gets to the point where they don't want to live anymore with the believing spouse because those are two different worldviews, right? 1 Corinthians 6 talks about two different worldviews, light and dark. And so Paul says, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, stay with them. Don't just automatically divorce them and say, well, spiritually incompatible now, we're out. No, because you came to Christ after the marriage, stay in the marriage. Don't just ditch or bail on them, but if that unbelieving spouse does not want to live with you anymore, then he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, the brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now, many people uh, see in the Bible the permanence of marriage, and so they interpret Jesus' words as well as other places as saying the only way that a person could be remarried is if through the death of a spouse. Um, there's reasons for that. We can talk about it later. But I'm interpreting this, as others do, that when there's permission for divorce, such as unchastity or an unbeliever leaving, that that is also granting permission for remarriage. And I think there's a pretty strong case for that. So what we see in Jesus' teaching, though, is this. Jesus' teaching upholds God's intended plan for permanence in marriage. And he does that very clearly. All right. Let me move on now to some practical questions. Um, I've tried to anticipate a few. Maybe I won't answer yours exactly. We can talk later. But I also want to point you to some resources. So we have many resources at the Lifetree Resource Center. Uh, there's wonderful titles out there on so many different topics, but especially this one. Last week's sermon as well as this week's sermon, there's some great um, Resources. One of the resources is a book by Jim Neuheiser, and he takes 40 questions regarding divorce and remarriage, and he gives biblical answers to those. I referenced it this week in my own study, and I believe we have at least one copy out there. Uh, but there's also little mini booklets on all these different subjects. So, on to the practical questions. Here's one. A person may say, I divorced my spouse for unbiblical reasons and we're now both remarried. Should we divorce our current spouses and get back together? Short version, no. Why? Because there's a principle in Deuteronomy 24 that's speaking against this. Plus, if you're trying to undo the previous failure of divorce with another divorce, that just creates a whole other, or two other divorces actually. It creates a whole other set of problems. And so what do you do? Work on your marriage. Work on your marriage. 
be with the person that you're with and receive the Lord's forgiveness, confess it to the Lord if you haven't done already, and move forward together and, and create a marriage that honors the Lord and that is, in, is united in him. That's how to answer that question. Another question. We divorce for non-biblical reasons. We're not remarried. Should we reconcile? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, which is a very key verse on all these different subjects regarding divorce and remarriage, is helpful. Paul writes, he says, To the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. That's another way of saying should not divorce her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Ideal? Don't divorce one another. But if you do divorce then you need to either be reconciled to that previous spouse or remain unmarried. Why? Because you don't have a valid reason for moving on and being remarried, as Jesus gave that um, allowance for divorce and remarriage back in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, as well as what we see in 1 Corinthians 7. All right, another question. I'm thinking and planning to divorce my spouse should I? Well, let me answer your question with a question or two. Knowing Jesus' teaching on the two becoming one, what do you think? Considering Jesus' teaching that we'll get into next week about keeping your oaths and keeping your vows, what do you think? Also, another question. Do you want you and your spouse to be convicted under God's word as adulterers for not divorcing for a biblical reason and then moving on to another marriage? No, I don't hope you wouldn't. So what do you do? Again, you work on your marriage. Work on your marriage. There's all kinds of resources, all kinds of people that can help with this. I'm not saying this is easy, all right? I've been in the counseling room with people where it's difficult to work through these things. I understand that. But you can work on this. God's word has a clear path forward. Another question. Is there any hope for me? I feel guilty. I feel judged for my adultery. And I feel judged and guilty for my divorce. Is there any hope for me? Short answer. Yes. Absolutely. Ephesians 5. 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Let me point out a few things. For all people, regardless of, their, regardless of our sins, past, present, or future, Jesus Christ loved you, and loves you and gave his very life for you. Isn't that great news? That's Jesus giving his life over for you. This scripture tells us that Jesus has, that's past tense, has sanctified believers, cleansed believers, and presented us as the church to himself. We've learned in our scriptures in Matthew 5 and, and following that Jesus forgives murderers, murderers of the heart or physical murderers. He forgives adulterers. 
And he forgives those who've been involved in the sin of divorce or adultery, whatever it may be. Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross is completely sufficient to cover all sins. Adultery and divorce are not the unforgivable sins. Denying Christ is the unforgivable sin. But we can bring him everything, all of our hurts, all of our concerns, all of our missteps, all of our transgressions and say, Jesus, forgive me and help me to walk forward the way that you would want me to. And I would also like to say this, that if you're in Christ, you are wed to a husband who has prepared you and is preparing you for your big day in heaven. Jesus isn't just one who grants forgiveness and stands away. No, he grants forgiveness and then he envelops us in his arms and he moves us forward, preparing us for the big day when we come to him in heaven. That's who Christ is. So is there any hope for you? Yes, absolutely there is. All sin can be forgiven through the death of Jesus on the cross. And the scriptures give us practical help to move forward with the consequences that do come from any of our choices. And so that's how I would answer those questions. All right, so we've seen so far that Jesus, uh, first of all, corrects our immoral view of divorce. His teaching also protects God's righteous um, view or design for marriage. And then let me just end with this. What ought we to do? Well, no matter what stage we're in, whether we're single now or whether we're in marriage now, proactively strengthen your marriage. That's how you can combat some of these things which cause divorce. All right, uh, my family knows a, a, an older couple uh, from our time back in Michigan. They're actually from Ohio, but moved to Michigan, and named Cliff and Ruth. Cliff and Ruth would always send out this Christmas letter, and Cliff is a big jokester. He always liked to get his, his Christmas letter because he's always joking about something. So a few years ago, he wrote this letter, and I want to share just a couple of his lines. He said, in another year, Ruth and Cliff, he speaks in the third person also, (laughs) in another year, Ruth and Cliff will have their 50th wedding anniversary. Ruth worked nearly 50 years to change Cliff's habits, and now she complains that he's not the man she married. (laughs) And then later on, um, oh, I'll throw this in here, it's more fun, okay. Cliff Ruth asked Ruth where she wanted to go for their 50th anniversary. Ruth replied, somewhere I haven't been in a long time. So Cliff suggested the kitchen. (laughs) Ruth says the only reason they have a kitchen is because it came with the house. Cliff says that Ruth always keeps several get well cards on the mantle, so if unexpected guests arrive, they will think she's been sick and unable to clean the house. (laughs) Ruth told Cliff that if he ever decides to leave her, she's going with him. So with a threat like that, they just stay married. I love that. Actually, they have a great relationship. They've been married probably 55 plus years now, but uh, they do both honor Christ. But as we think about the reasons for staying married, it's not just because she threatens to come with me, <laughs> as funny as that is. But marriage is a big deal. Why? Because of God's design. Because of God's design. But it's also a picture of something much bigger. You see, the world offers a very cheap view of marriage. The world says that marriage exists to make me happy. Can you imagine living in a home where both people are demanding that you, the other make the other person happy? Wow, 
What a self-centered marriage. What fracture can happen? That's like a fault line uh, ready to give way. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, the apostle Paul, Paul points to this. He quotes from Genesis 2. And then he says, this mystery is great. But then he switches subjects and shows the parallel. He says, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Here's the point. In marriage, something grander, something more deeply spiritual, something more heavenly is being rehearsed in the marriage relationship than just earthly companionship. The truth is that marriage exists to glorify God in living out the love of Christ in real time. Especially the Christian marriage, it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus in his relationship with the church. And so with all of this in mind, Jesus teaching, correcting our immoral view of divorce with his teaching protecting God's righteous view of marriage and the fact that marriage is an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, we are then called to have God's view and to live out the gospel in our marriages. So I want to leave you with an assignment. You're like, oh man, you're almost done. I thought we were leaving class without homework. I want to commend to us a study of Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. I believe I put these in your bulletin. Study that scripture. This isn't just for married people, but people who are single and maybe looking to marriage in the future. What's a wife's God-given role? What's a husband's God-given role? Why? And what does that really look like in actual life? Then look at that passage and say, what is marriage really all about? What's really going on here? And then which of my attitudes and actions need to change in order to reflect this higher significance of marriage? So Living Hope Church is Christ's kingdom citizens. We're not to have the world's immoral view of marriage and divorce. We're to have God's righteous view of marriage and how it mirrors the gospel. Let me stand. Sorry. No, let, let me pray as you stand. Please stand. <laughs> and I will pray for you and me. <laughs> God, when we come to a passage like this, I can't help but be struck with the weight of it and um, just the sense of our unworthiness or our, our failings. We, we, we falter in so many ways. Thank you for your grace. I thank you that you're a God who upholds your word, upholds the authority of your word, but is so gracious to us to accept us and to move us forward and to forgive us and to have a better day ahead for us as we look to you. So we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. God, I want to specifically pray that we would have your view of marriage, especially among our young people. Lord, marriage is under attack, and as we think about young people looking forward to marriage in the future, Lord, help them to have your view, your understanding of marriage, so they may honor and, and sanctify marriage as it ought to be. God, many in our midst have broken hearts because of struggling marriages or Past marriages, I pray for your healing, Lord. Only you can provide that. Let there be reconciliation where that needs to happen. Let there be healing and forgiveness and moving on where that needs to happen. And God, I pray that you would give your mercy and your grace abundantly so that you might help us to live a life in all ways that honor you. I thank you for 
our chance to gather around your word today. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.